The reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. You can follow along on the screen in the Blue Church Bibles and also in the leaflet. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And uh, my brain kicked into gear, and uh, I didn't get back to sleep. So if I fall asleep mid-sermon, um, just wake me up, will you? You'll also need uh, to uh, really be paying attention because I'm going to try and ask you lots of questions and get you to do all the heavy lifting uh, because um, I'm not really feeling up to it this morning. So anyway, um, I believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well amongst each of us uh, and that you have everything that you need uh, to correctly discern what God is putting before you. Now we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and uh, we've been unpacking what is probably the most famous block of Jesus' teaching. Uh, it contains many famous little phrases, one that my mother used to quote at me all the time when my brother and I were fighting, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're familiar with that? Yes. Uh, lots of very familiar words uh, from Jesus come out of this. And uh, when we unpack it, what we find is that it confronts us with an incredible vision of what true, gospel-hearted, spirit-empowered Christianity looks like. And this morning we're looking at what that actually looks like in the ground of our relationships. Last week we looked at the whole issue of murder and hate, uh, and Jesus picks uh, the next choice little topic, uh, the whole world of relationships, the whole world uh, of adultery and lust. Uh, so I'm sure I've got your attention. I don't need to go any further with my introduction, do I? You're all hooked in. Most of us uh, will agree that uh, we don't do relationships fantastically well, do we? Uh, our society doesn't do relationships fantastically well. There's lots and lots of heartbreak and pain. This morning, I think Jesus gives us a key for how to do relationships, particularly marriage, but not just marriage, particularly marriage, but not just marriage, in light of being citizens of the kingdom, in a way that will actually mean that we shine as lights in this world, that we are demonstrably different, that people would look at our relationships and see something that is, that is transforming or transformed from what they see. Now, Two weeks ago, I gave you Fs. Last week, I gave you Ds. This morning, I'm giving you Ss, okay? I have five of them. Thank the Lord for thesauruses. Uh, we're going to be unpacking this in the subtlety of sin, the symptom of sin, 
the seriousness of sin, the savagery of sin, and the solution to sin. So you got it? You know where we're going? Uh, it's all on an outline if you want to take notes. That's there. Yes, I get that. I get that. Okay, first question for you under the subtlety of sin. Who is Jesus talking to? Who is his, who is his immediate audience as he speaks these words? Anyone? It's the disciples, isn't it? Okay? He's not speaking to the crowds to invite them in. He's speaking to the disciples to tell them, this is what life in the kingdom looks like. Not what must you do to enter. What have you got to do to enter the kingdom? Jesus has already told us that. You need to repent. You need to turn away from any false kings and put your trust in King Jesus. He is the king of the kingdom. That's how you get in. And when you're in, this is what life looks like. Now, Jesus has a talking partner. He's actually speaking against a group of people. He's speaking against an idea of what biblical faith looks like. Who characterizes that? Anyone? Who is his talking opponents? The scribes and the Pharisees, isn't it? It's there in 5 verse 20. He actually tells us that unless our righteousness, if we are disciples of Jesus, if we are citizens of the kingdom, unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, we're going to do it better than the best. You know, you've got to be more beautiful, stronger and smarter than Sean Fishley. Uh, he was the one, put us there, he put it out there, he claimed that he ticked all the boxes. Kathy confirmed it, that he fell short on every level. But we need to get the perspective. We're used to the Pharisees as hypocrites, aren't we? Yes? But for the day, they were the best of the best. These guys were the shining stars of the religious game. And Jesus is saying, you have to do it better than they do. And in the second chunk of chapter 5, he gives us six contrast statements. So he said, you've heard it said, and then he fills in the blank, but I say to you, dot, dot, dot. And Jesus here is not speaking against the Old Testament. Often he picks up one of the Ten Commandments, like this morning, uh, you shall not commit adultery, uh, number six. And he also picks up a little bit of number ten, you shall not covet, uh, that comes into this morning. But he's not, he's not trashing the Old Testament. But what he is saying is that the way in which the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, have been teaching the people that this is how you do this, that way is actually wrong. That that is not true biblical faith. So Jesus doesn't throw the Old Testament out, but he transforms it and he reinterprets it. He gives it back its true meaning. And you see that the scribes and the Pharisees, they'd taken the law and they'd reduced it to externals. They had a list and they knew everything that was on that list. I've forgotten exactly how many laws they'd worked out. I think it's 263 is a, is a number. Don't hold me to that. And then what they'd done is they'd hedged each of those commands around with other commands. And they'd done it so well that what they had done was made a system that was humanly manageable. Hard work, but manageable. Because 
The Apostle Paul, when he speaks of himself as a Pharisee before he became a Christian, he says of himself that as for his righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. He tells us that he was blameless. He did all these things. But if you're easily offended, close your eyes right now. Uh, the word that he actually uses to describe what happened at his conversion to this righteousness is characterized by the puppy here. Uh, the product of this dog and the product of his righteousness is pretty much the same word that Paul actually uses. Apologies if I've just offended you. Paul came to realize that all his externals were nothing. It was just a pile of dog fill in the blank. Jesus was even more scathing. He attacks the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside but inside full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. He's saying, your externals are perfect. You tick the boxes. Everyone looks at you and goes, wow. But inside, you are death and corruption. See, the issue with the subtlety of sin is sin makes us want to reduce it to the externals, to the list of rules. So last week, you know, I gave you the illustration of the child who looks at the parents and said, I said sorry. No one remotely believes that the child is actually sorry. Have they said sorry? Yes. Are they compliant with the external law? Yes. Is the inward reality reflecting that? No. That is what sin does. It wants to have us think of it in terms of external. It wants us to think of it in terms of, you know, chicken pox. It's the spots on the skin, not the virus. And so we become managers of spots. Rash management rather than virus killers. That's what sin wants us to do, to reduce it to externals rather than what Jesus says, no, 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 it's all about the internals, it's the deeper issues, it's the heart issues. And we saw that last week, it's not enough that you don't kill the person, it's the intention. And Jesus says here this morning, it's not enough that you don't end up in bed together, it's actually what you're doing in your heart that is actually critical. So he moves on to the symptoms of sin. Because adultery itself is just a symptom of something that is much, much deeper. This sin with a capital S in the singular that is our rebellion against God, our rejection of Jesus as king. That is sin and it manifests in all sorts of behaviours. It manifests in murder and hate. It manifests in adultery and lust. It manifests in lying and cheating. It manifests in all sorts of things. But the issue is at the heart. Jesus says, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, ladies, apologies, um, Jesus is talking to maybe a group of four guys in front of the crowds. So he's speaking to a masculine group, so he frames it in a masculine way. Ladies, I hope you feel included. You're not exempt from this this morning. 
Uh, this is here for you as well. You could neuter it quite happily, that anyone who looks at another person, whether that person is of the same gender or the opposite gender, lustfully, has already committed adultery with them in their heart. Jesus moves from action, externals, to intention, to heart motivations. He moves from the hand to the heart, and he tells us that lust is adultery. Now, what he's not saying is that acknowledging that someone else is a beautiful example of God's creation, that is not lust. That is not lust. What Jesus is talking about here is actually taking the next step in your heart. So let me unpack lust. If you're taking notes, uh, I would like to define lust, and it's more applicable, uh, it's applicable to more than just, more than just marriage. Lust, I think, is a desire to take what is not yours to legitimately receive. Does that make sense? It's a desire to take what is not yours to legitimately receive. So you look at another. So in the context of adultery, you look at another and say, I want what that person offers me. I want to take what that person offers me. And it's not just sex, can I say. Sex is the obvious thing. But there is lots of ways to actually lust after another. Maybe you're lusting after the comfort that that relationship might bring. Maybe you're craving the power that associating yourself with that person might bring. Maybe you're wanting that significance, even just on a personal level. But maybe on a more significant level by attaching yourself to someone else of significance. That feeling of being special, that feeling of being loved, that feeling of being respected, of actually looking to someone, someone who you do not rightfully look to, to receive that. Yes, there's the physical, but there is a bigger, bigger perspective here. That relationship could be actual. It could be an actual person. And you're looking to that person to give you gratification, to give you significance, to give you comfort, to give you security, to give you love. But that person is not your spouse. In a way that's beyond normal friendship, in a way that's beyond normal relationship, you covet that person. You want what they have. And you will take it, even in your heart and in your mind. The relationship might be actual, but it might actually just be imaginary. This is the whole realm of pornography, isn't it? You don't know that person. You're 99.99% never going to meet that person. But you build a fantasy of sexual involvement with that person through pornography. It's erotic fiction, you know, 50 shades of whatever. It's that dwelling in that and dreaming of that and craving for that. Seeking fulfillment in that image that you are building up. Looking for that, if only. It's the movies that you watch. It's the fantasies that you entertain. Jesus has moved us beyond the physical act of infidelity, of sex outside of marriage. That's what adultery is. 
whether as a single or whether as a marriage with, married person with someone who's not your spouse. Jesus has moved us out of the physical into the internal, into that heart realm. And it's hard. How do we know? How do we know if we're crossing that line? Well, can I give you a couple of warning signs? When you start justifying it to yourself, when your little voice inside starts explaining why this is not a problem, why this is actually okay, why, hey, no one's hurt by this. You know, if my spouse was a better spouse, my husband was a better husband, my wife was a better wife, I wouldn't need to do this, but that validates what I'm doing. When we start having that little conversation with ourselves to actually convince ourselves that it is okay, it's just a little bit of harmless flirting. You know, they don't even know about it, so what do they, what do they care? It doesn't hurt anyone. When, when the little voice starts talking... Okay, let me give you an illustration of this. It's not sexual, so it's not going to be weird. Chocolate and me. You, I'm sure none of you do this. When you look at that Tim Tam, and you know it, it's, it's death incarnate, okay? I'm taking years off my life. But I really want it. And the little voice starts... You've actually been really good this week, you know? You haven't eaten any junk food. Oh, it's only a little thing. Oh, come on, you can go for a run afterwards. You don't do these things, do you? Those little justifications, just eat it and jump in, yeah. Why fight it? Hey, well, there's a point where you get to my age, Lorinda, at 46, honestly. And if you do just jump in... Well, you're worse for wear. But it's that thing. It's that little voice. Another sign that maybe you're in dangerous territory is where you want to hide. Think about Adam and Eve. They've eaten the fruit. What do they do? They hear God, but they hide. They hide. Adam does a really good job at justifying why it's not his fault. First illustration. Hey, the woman that you put here with me, God, she made me do it. Little voice justifying self. But they hide. So I ask you, the book that you're reading at the moment, perhaps, would you be happy if everyone here knew that you were reading that book? The movie that you watched... The little relationship that you're building in the imaginary world or the actual world, would you be prepared to be upfront with this? Would you be happy to tell your husband or your wife about that little, slightly better friendship that you're building with that man or that woman? the way they make you feel, the thing that you get from that relationship that perhaps you don't get from another relationship. Not just an ordinary friendship. There's nothing wrong. Friendship's great. But you know when you start to cross that line. And I, I just don't think they'd really understand the special connection that we have. What a blessing 
Christian brother, Christian sister, they really get me. And it's, I wouldn't want others, because they'd, they'd judge me, they'd condemn me. So I'll just keep it under wraps. Remember Dan Orlinder? He said, all sin is felt to be reasonable and justifiable given the situation and rarely experienced as malicious or God dishonouring in its intention. Sin, in fact, seems like the most reasonable, rational, common sense response. If you had a marriage like mine, you'd do what I'm doing, he says figuratively, okay? Rhetorically. Sin seems like the most reasonable, rational and common sense response. We seek to explain it away. It's not a big deal. Jesus says, no, 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 it is a really big deal. I mentioned this to a person um, during the week and they said, well, thank goodness I'm married because uh, lust is, you know, go for it in marriage. Can I, can I suggest the Bible makes a difference between what we're talking about here and what it would call, uh, there's a Greek word which you'll all probably recognise, it's called eros, it's sexual love. Um, what the Bible is not talking about here, what Jesus is not talking about is eros. That's right and appropriate to be expressed within marriage. But I think there is a dysfunctional lust, an unhealthy, sinful lust that can actually happen within marriage. Let me explain, it can also happen in friendships too. But you can look to meet needs that are not legitimate to meet from your spouse. Can I say if you do that, you will actually kill your marriage. But you can make your spouse into something. You can make your friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiancé into something that they were never meant to be and they cannot take the weight. You know the whole Jerry Maguire thing? You complete me and everyone goes, you heard me at hello, that kind of thing. Who was designed to complete us? Yes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, there is a wonderful thing in human relationship and the marriage relationship. But ultimately, the one that speaks to the very core of our being and gives us our relational foundation is our Heavenly Father. And if we put that load upon our spouse, we will crush them or drive them away. You know the Stevie Wonder thing, you are the sunshine of my life. You know, I went, to a, I went to a thing during the week, some of you may have been there, and the guy who was speaking was speaking about another Christian friend who was talking about their, their new fiancé and, oh, she's the light of my world. And he said, no, 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 the light of your world is Jesus. <laughs> Get some perspective. There is a point where we can look to our, our physical relationships, our human relationships, our earthly relationships to meet those needs that only God was actually designed to, make, to meet. Psalm 16 verse 2 says it. David says to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. He captures our Jerry Maguire moment, if you have to have one. It has to be with the Father. Not with our friends, not with our fiancés, not with our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our spouses, or even our imagination. It's in reality, through our faith in Christ, that is possible. But as I said, we tend to explain these things away. We just say it's not a really big deal. Jesus disagrees, can I say. He talks of the seriousness of sin in verse 29. 
He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus is not advocating self-harm. But he is saying sin is really, really serious. Remember the movie... Uh, about the guy who um, got his arm stuck. You've had a fall, and, and I think it's called 128 Hours or something. He's, I think it was an arm stuck, and he actually soared through his arm to get free. Um, just imagining even doing that is just gut-wrenching. But Jesus is actually saying it's better to do that than to indulge sin. It's better to gouge your eye out, as revolting as that is, than to indulge sin. But, question for you, what's wrong with this illustration that Jesus gives us? He knows it's wrong, by the way, so you're not being disrespectful. But what's he trying to provoke? What's wrong with cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye to deal with sin? Sorry? Yeah, where's the issue? The issue's actually in your heart. So Jesus actually, I think he's saying radical Radical steps are needed. I can cut my hand off. I can gouge my eye out, but I can't actually rip my heart out and give myself a new one. It's actually not possible. Jesus is saying sin is so serious that those things that he's designed to provoke us to go, oh, that far, but then he takes us even further. He takes us even further. Can I just speak? One of the common ways that people deal with Particularly, um, and I think I've probably done it in the past, so apologies if I've ever had this conversation with you um, and I've come across like this. But when people come and they say, look, they're in a relationship or they've got an issue with um, pornography on the net or that sort of stuff, their boyfriend, girlfriend, they're having trouble keeping pure. Uh, and so what, what do we do? We set in place accountability, okay, and we, we advise them about uh, putting boundaries in around that thing. So actually, you don't put yourself in that situation. And can I say, there's wisdom in that, but if you stop there, what are you being? You're doing exactly what the Pharisees did. They saw the command, they built the boundaries, but you've got to actually dress the heart. Jesus is saying, this is such a serious issue that dealing with the externals, changing behaviours actually won't work. You actually need to deal with the heart. If you are there flirting with sin, Jesus is saying it's like flavouring your coffee with poison. It is that serious. You are killing yourself. You are in danger of the fires of hell. We're going to talk about how we deal with it in a second, but I want to follow Jesus' argument to its end. Because he moves from lust and adultery to its inevitable conclusion in the world of divorce. Now, before I dig into this, can I say, this is not a sermon on divorce. It's a massive issue, and many of us here have actually been really hurt uh, through divorce. Um, so, if you would like to come and talk to me after this, I would love to chat to you. I also am aware that, because it's not a sermon on divorce, you may have questions 
that maybe you don't want to talk to me about, but you'd love to do. So I actually dug up an old sermon that I wrote a few years ago. I read it through. It's actually not bad. Um, I don't disagree with it majorly. Um, I made some copies of it. They're down on the back table uh, as you go out on the, le- on the right. Uh, and that is there. It's on Matthew 19. This is not Jesus' only word. It's not the Bible's final word on divorce. Jesus is attacking not those who have been victims of divorce... He's actually attacking the perpetrators, and we need to get that in our heads. He's attacking the scribes and the Pharisees who were using divorce to brutally oppress, particularly women. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Remember, Jesus is not having a go at people who have been divorced. He's actually having a go at people who are using this as a weapon. Because lust is taking, taking what you want from a relationship with one other person or many other people. And divorce is the logical end because when you've got what you want and the person is no longer providing it, You go on to the next one, don't you? That's the logic of the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus is saying that is not the way of the kingdom. It treats people as commodities. It treats them as tools for our gratification. And we have a society that has this utilitarian, this kind of tool mentality when we deal with other people. I'm here for as long as I get my needs met. And then I'm gone, and I move on to the next. Now, Jesus is right. does say anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. It's there in Deuteronomy 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent, literally a matter of nakedness about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. So divorce is there in the Old Testament. But Matthew 19... Jesus makes it plain that it's there because of our sinful hearts, not because of God's ultimate intention in marriage. It's there, it's there because of our sin. And what had happened, that matter of nakedness, that something indecent, the rabbis were starting to get together and say, well, what is that? Traditionally, it always had been interpreted as adultery. And so really, what divorce was doing was acknowledging that the covenant had been broken. That's what it was doing. It was just a formality to actually say the adultery has broken the covenant, the covenant of marriage, and so therefore the certificate of divorce is in some ways the formalities that acknowledge that. Okay? Okay? You don't have to here, by the way. There's no command, but there's a permission. But the rabbis were starting to have a debate. Well, what does this actually mean? Well, for Rabbi Hillel, it meant that even if she spoiled a dish for him. So ladies, if you're cooking a dinner tonight, be really careful you get it right. Divorce your wife because she stuffed the dinner. Hmm, okay. Maybe divorce your husband because he stuffed the dinner. Let's be egalitarian here. Okay, gets worse. The rabbi Akiba in the Mishnah said he may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. How to make your wife feel insecure or your husband feel insecure? And this was the kind of debate. What what is something indecent? Well, 
there's a better looking girl in the room and I want to marry her. Or there's a better cook. Are you serious? And Jesus is scathing. He's scathing. If you divorce someone for these reasons, you are perpetrating a horrendous abuse against them. You are making her literally a victim of adultery. Why? Because you are forcing her. There's no social security. There's no Centrelink. Often the families would not want to know the divorcee. And so the woman is forced into another relationship and she therefore must break her covenant with her husband who's put her aside. You've made her a victim of adultery. You've forced her into a situation where she has no options. Divorce is never a good thing. Sometimes because of human sinfulness, it's an, it's an appropriate thing, can I say? Sometimes divorce is necessary, but it's never good. And it's not the unforgivable sin either. Sometimes divorced people feel like pariahs, feel like second best. No. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And so often, it's the victim, not the perpetrator, that feels that way. So if that's you this morning, hear this word. Jesus is scathing about what has happened to you. There's got to be an answer. If we are to have our relationships not built on this taking from others what I feel I need to build myself, if we are to have our relationships transformed so we are actually able to shine as lights, to be demonstrably difficult, difficult, different, I'm probably demonstrably difficult, but anyway, what's the solution? What's the solution? If lust is all about taking, the answer is love. Because love is all about giving. Lust is about getting what I want, desiring to have. Love at its core is desiring to give. So as two people come together, the difference is... If it's lust that is binding them, they are both looking, perhaps, or maybe one is looking for the other, to get what I want. As two people come together and love is what is binding them together, whether in friendship or in marriage, they are both asking each other, what can I give? How can I bless? It's not about what I want, it's what about they want. That is the ideal that is actually there. It comes from a heart that is radically transformed. It comes from a heart that has been remade. How? Well, this is what Ezekiel promises. The Lord says, I will give you a new heart when he speaks of the covenant that comes with Christ. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, your heart that lusts, your heart that tries to achieve what you want through relationships with other and plunders others to get that. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Jeremiah 31 says, I will write my law upon your heart by my spirit. That's the promise. Not gouging eyes and cutting hands. Yes, we've got to be ruthless with sin. 
But the issue is way bigger. And Jesus and the gospel, the death and resurrection, his death for our sin, that is where we find the answer. Because as we recognize that through the death and resurrection of Christ, God has met our deepest need. God has met our deepest relational need, our deepest need for security, our deepest need for significance, because no one can trump son, daughter of God. God has bound himself to us in a covenant that transcends any marriage. Our marriages merely point to the marriage between Christ and his people. Our marriages, as good as they can be, are just signposts for the wonderful promise that we as God's people are the bride of Christ. When we see that through the death and resurrection of Christ, not only are we granted forgiveness, but God has met so many other needs as well. Things that we look for on the horizontal, He has given us on the vertical. And our problem is that we turn from Him and we seek them with others. What's the answer? The answer is to actually go to Him. And as we drink deep at the well of salvation, as we know His love for us, not just, hey, yes, I prayed a prayer once, I know God loves me, but actually going back and singing and praying and worshipping and digging deep into His Word and understanding more and more and growing in His love. Then we are set free because I don't need from you. I love getting, but I don't need. I don't need to make you into something that you're not. Because everything I need is in Christ. God has given it to me. And that then frees me as it frees you to love, to give and not get, to step forward and seek to bless, not to step forward to grab and to get. Brothers and sisters, as we live in the gospel, as we live in the love that God has lavished upon us in Christ, it is then that we truly will do relationships different. Not just marriage, although our marriages should look radically different, but friendship. All relationships. Because we are loved and so we can love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that although we don't deserve it, although it was our sin that took Jesus to the cross, although it was our poverty that meant he was crucified, but through him, we have forgiveness. Through him, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Through him, your love has been lavished upon us. Father, we are sorry when we've sought to gratify those needs through our relationships with others. We're sorry for where we have sought things that we should only seek from your hand. Father, 
Help us to be faithful in our relationship with you and so with one another. Help us to love. Forgive us when we don't. And so convince us of your grace and mercy for us day by day that through your spirit we go out and love as Christ loved and so bring glory to your name. And in his name we pray. Amen.